everyone, welcome to episode 137 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And Chris is going to start us off with a poem today. Yeah, this was a poem that Peter Heller shared at a recent author event that I attended via Zoom. It is by the 9th century Tang Dynasty poet, Li Shang Yang. When will I be home? When will I be home? I don't know. In the mountains, in the rainy night, the autumn lake is flooded. Someday we'll be back together again. We will sit in the candlelight by the west window, and I will tell you how I remembered you tonight on the stormy mountain. Mm, I love that. He recited that. He's really into the Tang Dynasty poets. So more on that later. Yeah, and he's a poet himself. So I can't wait to hear Chris did an event with him. So we're going to hear more. We have a couple follow-ups from previous episodes. I have one which I talked about a friend who wrote their PhD on the gilded edges of books. And I found out that's called goffering. Goffering, cool. So a little fun fact. And then also our listener, Karen, when we were talking about Bleak House and talking about books being serialized and our books serialized anymore, she said Stephen King's book, The Green Mile, was originally published in a serialized format. Very cool. Yeah, so thanks for that, Karen. Yeah, I haven't read that one by him. No, I've seen the movie. I have not read the book. Right. Well, Bleak House, follow up with that. Our listener, Robin, in California, shared an article on Twitter and tagged me about 1851 and Dickens. It's a new book out about that year and Dickens specifically. Unfortunately, there's been a new stack of letters discovered written by Dickens or to Dickens. I'm not sure. And it was revealed that he tried to have his wife committed Mm. to an insane asylum, which is really sad to hear because she wasn't at all. She was just an encumbrance, to use a word that was, I think, used in the article. It didn't work. It didn't happen. But he was such a social activist. And it's just really disheartening to think that someone who did a lot of good in the world would do that to someone he loved at one point and who bore him nine children. Yeah. So. That's too bad. And then the... The narrator of The Bleak House, Emily, had a follow-up on that. Right. When Chris was saying that she loved the narrator because he handled all the different characters so well, and I told her I met Simon Vance. He was a guest at one of the Booktopias. I cannot remember where, but Anne and Michael brought in three different narrators, including Simon Vance, who at the time, you know, audiobooks were popular, but not as popular as they've gotten. But he was a very award-winning, revered narrator. And it was really interesting to listen to him talk about how he developed his career because he had been an actor and kind of fell into audiobook narrating and is well known for books with multiple characters. Very cool. Yeah, Yeah. I'm going to track him down and just see, just maybe listen to a book that I don't even know about just because he narrated it. Yeah, he gives good voice, as they say. And it was, <laughs> it was fun to listen to an event with him because his voice was just so mesmerizing. And that was really yes, cool. Yeah, that's cool. Speaking of audiobooks, at the end of this episode, we have an interview with author and editor Juliet Grames, who happens to mention 
the narrator of her book, The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna. So stay tuned for that interview. We had a really good time talking with Juliet. We did. Yeah, she had so much to say. It was really fun. We probably could have talked to her all afternoon. Anyway, Chris, what are you currently reading? Well, it is no surprise to anyone who knows me that I'm currently reading the new Louise Penny novel, The Madness of Crowds. I ended up getting this as an ebook, which I've never done before with a Louise Penny book, but I wanted to start reading it that morning right away and not wait until 10 a.m. when the bookstores opened. And then it turned out to be a good thing because my whole day was kind of shot for a variety of reasons, but I did have the ebook to start reading. I had a hardcover sent to my mom in Chicago, so there is one in the family. (laughs) (laughs) But this book, I have to say a little bit when I first started it. Because it deals with uh, it deals with the pandemic and hate speech slash people who were controversial causing madness in crowds, basically. Oh, that makes sense. Yes. I never thought about the title. Yeah. yeah. So I was wondering what she was going to do with that. And it is. It's this madness of crowds and how people get riled up and pitted against one another. Now, I have to say, yes, the first chapter or two, I was kind of like, oh, I don't know if I'm up for this. But of course, then I got sucked in. So speaking of my mom again, we talked last night and she said the same thing. She's like, so how are you liking it? I said, well, at first, blah, blah, blah. She's like, I was wondering about that. She's like, I felt the same way. She's a little bit further in the book than I am and had the very same experience. Hesitancy at first, but then getting sucked in. Probably just because it's good old Louise Penny who can handle anything well, I Mm -hmm. imagine. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think there's a lot of chatter about authors writing about the pandemic and are people ready to read about that sort of thing yet because we're still living it. Mm -hmm. Well, and even the political violence that has happened in our country, Mm -hmm. you know, that's just still so raw and Mm -hmm. still happening in our country. Right. I'm reading Pi Academy which is a cookbook that the gentleman caller found for me at the Guilford Library when we were there. He was very cute. We were browsing in different parts of the library, and this is the book he found. (laughs) It's got a beautiful cover. It's about mastering the perfect crust and fillings. It's by Ken Hadrich. Longtime listeners know I've been trying to perfect my pie crust. I've been a baker for years, but kind of had maybe an irrational fear of the pie crust because it's a little bit particular. I've come to discover part of my problem is I have very warm hands. Mm. And so a lot of the way that you're taught to use pie crust is to use your hands when you're manipulating the butter and the flour and everything. So now I either use my food processor or a pastry cutter and I'm having much more success. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And this book is really good. The pictures are beautiful. And it's amazing to me that even after all these years of baking, I can always seemingly find some little new hack or trick. Hadrick has you add cornstarch to your pie crust, which I've never done before. I've added cornstarch or rice flour to shortbread cookies, which makes them more crunchy and kind of crumbly. But in this case, cornstarch is going to make your crust more flaky. You know, that's interesting. Now, do you do that with the vodka? Yeah, because I know that that vodka trick is a new one too for you, relatively new anyway. Yeah, and that was from the cookbook Rage Baking. So between those two cookbooks, I actually can make pie crust now. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, the gentleman caller loves himself a pie. <laughs> I thought it was really cute that this is what he brought my way. So I'm, you know, it is a library book. I probably am going to buy a copy. It has incredible recipes. I made the blueberry nectarine lime 
double crusted pie. Oh, that sounds good. It was good and very seasonal. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you have kitchen tools to use because as soon as he started talking about warm hands, I was thinking, well, how could she adjust that? Could she like put splints on her arms so you know lower the circulation okay good so now your arms won't actually fall off You'll right. have, you can use your kitchen tools right or ice my hands beforehand <laughs> <laughs> well i'm also reading a really cool memoir by a scientist edith witter phd the title is below the edge of darkness a memoir of exploring light and life in the deep sea So cool. I saw this one on display at the library and I couldn't walk past it. I had to pick it up. Really cool cover of um, octopus tentacles. And she's one of the pioneers in bioluminescence research in the deep ocean. You know, animals, creatures, cells that light up. You know, think fireflies, right? Really cool. She was one of the first to go down and study them in, you know, submersibles in the mid-ocean. I guess traditionally in scientific oceanic studies, that was kind of considered like a dead zone. Nothing's happening there. You want to be on the surface where the cool animals are or really deep down to discover what's down there. What she found out was that that middle zone is tremendously populated by all of these creatures that have bioluminescent qualities as a way to attract prey or to cover themselves, which is really fascinating. But she talks about how every day there is a horizontal migration, and it's the biggest migration in the world that happens as these sea creatures, as the light's going down, the sun is setting, things are getting darker, so these creatures rise up closer to the surface to feed and to be food for other creatures. And it's like a huge migration that happens vertically. That's amazing. Isn't that like, you don't really think about that. Like I've heard about, you know, human migration. We're talking pre-industrial revolution usually happened horizontally because you would stay in your same climate zone so you can grow the same crops. Because if you go from South America to North America, you have to adjust what crops you're growing for that. So anyway, fascinating, fascinating book. And she has such a great sense of humor. Oh, fun. Yeah, she has these fun footnotes that offer commentary on things. So she's a real hoot. I totally recommend this book. And there are cool photos. I'm showing Emily some. Oh, look at that. Some photos because, um, like, look at that. These creatures. I just think it'd be so cool to go down in one of those submersibles too and see the ocean from that vantage point because most of us have to only see it as far as we can breathe or an oxygen tank will take us. Absolutely. <laughs> and she, when she went down um, that first time, she's like, oh my God, it's like the 4th of July down here. Wow. You know, and her crew was kind of making fun of her when she came back up. But she said in the subsequent decades, everyone who goes down, that's the first thing they say is like, oh my God, it's like the 4th of July down here. Wow. Yeah, because it's not just, you know, a lot of people think it's like that bluish light, but there are creatures that luminous red, green, orange, like all of these different colors. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. So again, that's Below the Edge of Darkness, a memoir of exploring light and life in the deep sea. I'm also reading Radiant Fugitives by Nawaz Ahmed. And this is a book that's in the Center for Fiction, first novel, long list prize. It's a very interesting book. It's told from the point of view of an unborn child. 
the very opening, so this is not a spoiler, we learn that his mother is going to pass away during childbirth. It's about three women who are Muslim from India, but they're all now stateside. And the woman who passes away has been disowned or disavowed, I should say, by her family, mostly driven by her father, because she came out as a lesbian and was having a relationship with a woman. And her sister, who's much more devout than her, lives in Texas and is also not having a relationship with her, nor is her mother, because this was really all the great father has spoken. Now that the daughter, Seema, is expecting a baby, the mother kind of goes against her husband and comes stateside because she wants to be with her daughter as she finishes up her pregnancy and gives birth. And her sister comes, so all three of the women are together, and they're trying to manage this relationship where they haven't seen each other for a long time. The woman, Seema, who's pregnant, works in an office for Kamala Harris during the Obama administration. Oh, cool. So it's very present day. It's really an interesting book that's talking about gender identity and also the immigrant experience and family dynamic. But the fact that the perspective is from the unborn child, I can't say I've ever read a book like that. Mm -hmm. I've read The Lovely Bones, which was from the perspective of someone who had died, which is, you know, I think I've read several books like that, but never one that's unborn. I'm really enjoying it. Again, it's called Radiant Fugitives by Nawaz Ahmed. Wow, that sounds really fascinating. And I know that so a lot of that is imaginative Mm -hmm. because we don't actually know what fetus think in the womb, right? But, you know, talking about, as we have in the past, trauma that is experienced in the womb, it does highlight. Yeah, it's definitely the whole intergenerational trauma of also just what it's like to be a a Muslim in the United States. Mm Mm-hmm because the one sister is very devout and her children come and wearing the hijab and what that experience is like for them walking around San Francisco during the Obama years. Yeah. And again, too, like they're different sects of Islam, Mm -hmm. just like with Christianity. So do they go into that? I'm not far enough in to know about that. And I don't know that that's the point of the book. I think it's more the three women and their dynamic and how they're trying to repair their relationship and understand each other Mm -hmm. again. That was Radiant Fugitives by Nawaz Ahmed. All right, so what have you just read? Drum roll. I just finished Anna Karenina, informally known as Anna Kay by Leah Tolstoy. That was my big summer read. Chris was reading Bleak House by Dickens. I was reading this. It was a little longer than Bleak House. It was like a 40-hour audiobook (laughs) and a very much a tome that's sitting on the desk in front of us and has made my book stack very large. (laughs) I really liked it. I wasn't sure what I was going to think about it. I thought the story was very interesting. I'm glad I'm a woman now and not back then. That is one of my big takeaways. I also just found it fascinating, though, that infidelity has been around since the dawn of people. It was interesting that in Anna Kay, it's about both women and men in marriages and having experiences with infidelity and love. And you get married really young. And is that the person you still want to be with asking those questions? But then there's also quite a bit of political parts to the book. I read a lot about it in the character of Levin, who runs a farm, and the book takes place in Russia. 
he has a lot of question about society and the workers' place in society and really questions his role as running a farm and kind of lording the power over these workers. And I found that whole aspect really surprising. There's a lot of farming in the book, you know? Yeah. So I enjoyed it very much. And one of my big takeaways is no matter if it was back then and in Russia, relationships are hard. Women's place in society has been troubled since the dawn of time, which is really sad, and how their children are used against them, both in utero and out. Yeah, I'm glad I read it. It feels like a big accomplishment. It's a book I've wanted to read for a really long time. And thank you to my reading buddies who joined me and participated on the Goodreads thread. I yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. That was a lot of fun to have co-readers along yeah. with our big books. Yeah. Well, speaking of being happy to be a woman alive now instead of in a past time, this is a book, another nonfiction title. It's by Kate Moore. It's her new one. She wrote The Radium Girls, which was very popular a couple years ago. So her new book is called The Woman They Could Not Silence, One Woman, Her Incredible Fight for Freedom, and the Men Who Tried to Make Her Disappear. So this is the story of Elizabeth Packard. It starts in 1860 in Illinois. She and her husband, Theophilus, I believe is how you pronounce his name. They were originally from Massachusetts, I believe, and and moved to Illinois, and he was a pastor. They'd been married for just a little bit over 20 years when he starts wanting to have her shut up, basically, because she's through her child rearing. She's born a bunch of children. She's at the point now where she has the brain space to participate in like his Bible group. So she starts writing essays about things. It's also about religious abuse because her God is a happy, loving God, and his God is the God of brimstone. And he tells the kids, you're awful, you're all going to burn in hell kind of thing, which is very abusive. I know it's the line. It's a tradition in American religion and, and other places, even within the one Bible or the Quran, to have these different takes and what people focus on. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is that she was committed to an asylum for the insane by her husband because she was speaking her mind, basically, and having opinions and disagreeing with him. He turned the congregation against her, so all of the people in the congregation signed a statement saying that she should be put in an insane asylum. She became a big reformer, spoiler alert, she does get out, and many laws were passed after this experience Because a woman in the 19th century and prior, you know, if you got married, you basically became civilly dead. You had no rights. You couldn't own property. You weren't even in charge of your children. They were owned by your husband. So a lot came to light with this situation and just the legal issues around it, the early development of the psychology field, which was crazy because (laughs) I didn't mean that ironically. (laughs) There's no training for it. Everybody's having their different beliefs of things. And so people are being put into insane asylums for a whole bunch of different reasons. And for women, there was no, no way out. If your husband wanted you committed, you'd be committed at this time. She has some great pictures in here. Also, there's this chart of reasons why people were put in the insane asylum, the Jacksonville insane asylum in Illinois. So I'm just going to read this list of reasons why people were 
committed. All right. So domestic trouble, religious excitement, business anxieties, death of friends, puerperal. Have you heard of that? Mm-mm. So that is the six-week period after a woman gives birth and mm-hmm. her internal organs are returning to their pre-pregnancy state. A disappointed love, overexertion, vicious indulgences, spiritualism, hard study, physical injury, change of life, sunstroke, intemperance, novel reading, fear, brain fever, epilepsy, paralysis, hereditary, and unknown. And out of all of these, they added up to 446 patients, I believe. This was from their 10th biannual report. 193 were unknown. Hmm. So people were just put in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, shocking. In awful conditions, too, in a lot of them. Anyway, the book itself, it's huge. It's over 500 pages. The writing style, uh, it's not exactly my cup of tea, I have to say. She draws out the narrative a little bit too much for my liking and tries to make it a bit of a page turner. And it just didn't work for me. But I think a lot of people will find this an engaging read, especially if you don't know anything about women in the 19th century. This will be a big eye opener, I think. Mm -hmm. So again, that is Kate Moore's new book, The Woman They Could Not Silence. It's interesting because you can also read a novel like Anna Karenina and see how women were silenced in other ways Mm -hmm. or tried to push against being silenced. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so again, you know, one of those reading synchronicities too, reading this book and then Robin tweeting that article about Dickens that mentions him trying to get his wife committed into an insane asylum. An easy way for people to not have to go through the social stigma of divorce. Instead, they can just use this convenient way of getting rid of their wife. Right. That's right. And then they get all the sympathy. Aw, poor guy. His wife went mad. Yeah. I read The Paper Palace by Miranda Cowley Heller. Oh, I love this book. It's a debut novel. It's getting a lot of press. I think it's a Reese Witherspoon book club book pick. And what I loved about it is it takes place in Cape Cod, which is a place that I love. And she has a family home there that her grandfather built. And it's what they're referring to as the paper palace because he ran out of money at one point and used a material. I didn't write the name down. It's something like Himisote or something like that, which is essentially cardboard. <laughs> so he basically, you know, made paper and then made it into a house and it's been there for a long time. So it's not necessarily standing up as well as it could, but they still go there. There's multiple buildings. The book deals with an infidelity that occurs right at the very beginning. And you don't know why these two people who have known each other for a very long time decide to consummate their relationship in that way during a family dinner when both of them are having both of their families over. Oh my. And then the design of the book is really interesting because it starts at that point and then takes you through a day so that it starts with that event and then it's a 24 hour period after, but then interspersed is these segments back in time. So you start to understand and build up to the relationship and why they have this friendship and how they got to this point. Hmm. It's fascinating Elle is in her 50s, too. I forgot to say that part. So the the consummation of the relationship is between Elle and Jonas, who are best friends. And then Elle's husband's name is Peter. And Jonas is married to a woman who's a very small character in the book. What I loved about it was her descriptions of the cape 
and the water and the vegetation there were just magnificent. And this house of theirs is on a freshwater kettle pond. And they do a lot of swimming across the pond, which is beautiful. And I've paddled some of those ponds. She just painted such a beautiful picture. Honestly, as I was reading it, I don't know if you might find some of that part of the book almost redundant that she talks about it so much. For me, it was beautiful, but I could see someone who's never been there that's like, okay, enough already about Mm. the ponds and whatever. But I really liked that part. Elle's mother and her grandmother are difficult women, and her mother is really tough. She's just a tough cookie. And there are some themes that are difficult of domestic violence in this book. So just a little trigger warning to people. And another one about intergenerational trauma and why people make the decisions that they make. I loved it. I really loved it. I just thought it was a beautiful book. The Paper Palace, Miranda Cowley Heller. All right. That seems to be a theme for you lately. I know. Yeah. I don't know if it's just that I happen to be picking these books or if it's becoming a much more common theme in novels. Yeah. Or they're picking you. Yes, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I also read a book that's totally not a domestic type novel. It is called The Final Girl Support Group by Grady Hendrix. Kind of like anti-domestic novel. This just came out July 13th from Berkeley Books. Grady Hendrix wrote the book I love so much. Was it just last summer? The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires that I love so much. So he writes novels and other things around the horror genre. And he likes to look back at classic horror from generations past anyway and doing things with them. In this case, he does a very meta story. So the final girl is the girl who's the one left standing at the end of slasher films. I'm not a fan of slasher films, the gory ones where there's some man who's killing people for whatever reason. So there's like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, Halloween, you know, Scream Scream makes an appearance in here. I never saw that. But I know enough just from watching, you know, like Halloween and uh, Friday the 13th. And hearing, I mean, I've never watched like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I couldn't probably handle that kind of stuff. But he does a great job of taking these stories. He call, he has different names for them, but, you know, they're so iconic that you know just from being alive what the story kind of is. And so he creates these characters who are the last woman standing and creates a world where their stories were the basis for the films. So what happened to them was real and then the movies were based on their experience. And they have the support group. That's hilarious. All right. There's this, you know, psychologist, psychiatrist who has kind of really built her career around helping women who've been in these extreme situations. They meet and they all are handling their trauma in very different ways. And then suddenly they start dying. Someone is killing them. And one of the characters, who's the main character, and I really liked her voice, she wasn't really considered a real final girl. So like even in this group of final girls who are so unique and have gone through so much trauma, they still have a pecking order. Right. You know, just like so human nature to do these things. Yeah, I'm not going to give any spoilers about it. It doesn't go into like extreme detail of violence, but there is violence. And there is a lot of kick-ass women, though, because the women are saving themselves 
what more can I say? That is the final girl support group by Grady Hendricks, available now. Well, we just survived Hurricane Henri. And during that day, um, we got really lucky where we live. The hurricane kind of went off to the east, but we were definitely on alert and in our homes the whole day. I treated myself to just reading a book and baking pies from the Pie Academy cookbook. And the book that I chose was put in my hands by a friend's daughter, and it's called Once There Were Wolves by Charlotte McConaughey. And she had a book called Migrations out last year that was a big hit, and I think this one is heading that way. Oh, this book is so beautiful. It is a novel, and it's about putting gray wolves back into society to try to help with climate change. So I want to read a couple passages. And this first one I'm going to read is actually part of her acknowledgments. And she says, I must again acknowledge the wild creatures and places in this world, which inspired every word of this novel. The gentle they have shown us far outstrips anything we have ever shown them in return. Though Scotland has not yet passed an initiative to reintroduce wolves, it's my hope that they, along with the rest of the world, and especially my homeland of Australia, will further embrace the essential work of rewilding And maybe in doing so, we will begin to rewild ourselves. The story is about a young woman, Inti, who is in charge of reintroducing this group of wolves in Scotland. And it's very controversial, mostly because farmers don't like it, because wolves can kill their livestock. But part of the reason that I didn't know why you want to put wolves back into society is because they call the deer population and some other animals that prevent vegetation from growing. So it's a big learning curve for me to understand all of that. The main character, Inti, has a condition. I'm going to read about it. I am unlike most people. I move through life in a different way, with an entirely unique understanding of touch. Before I knew its name, I knew this. To make sense of it, it is called a neurological condition, Mirror touch synesthesia. My brain recreates the sensory experiences of living creatures, of all people, and even sometimes animals. Wow. So she can feel things that are happening in front of her and around her. So the very, very first sentence of this novel is, When we were eight, dad cut me open from throat to stomach. Yikes. That gets your attention, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) And then it turns out it's not her, but it's an animal. So they've been out in the woods hunting, and she's experiencing this animal's experience after it's been caught, and then they're preparing it to eat. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting novel. Her descriptions are beautiful, her descriptions of wolves. She obviously, the author, did a lot of research on how they track them once they're being rewilded and also how they interact with each other. Then it's a cast of characters in Scotland where she and her sister are living as she's in charge of putting these wolves back into society and how the farmers react and the other people in the countryside react to the experience. Well, that's kind of refreshing. Very different for me as a reader anyway, because most of the stuff I know about wolves and cattle ranchers clashing is from the American West. You know, I didn't think about this being an issue in other countries as well. But yeah, obviously. Yeah, and I'm not sure why I haven't seen any events with her. I don't know why she chose Scotland, because she's from Australia. And we have had wolves put back at Yellowstone here in our country in the United States. 
And she used that as an example throughout the book, but didn't choose that as her locale. So one other section I want to read is just where they're at a meeting with all of the people in the town and they've reintroduced the wolves and they're kind of explaining it. What we have here in Scotland, Evan says, is an ecosystem in crisis. We urgently need to rewild. If we can extend woodland cover by 100,000 hectares by 2026, then we could dramatically reduce CO2 emissions that contribute to climate change and we could provide habitats for native species. The only way to do this is to control the herbivore population. And the simplest, most effective way to do that is to reintroduce a keystone predator. I never really understood why all of this was happening. I just thought it was like, oh, wolves are endangered. They want them back. You know, I hadn't thought about the whole ecosystem Mm -hmm. of it. And she does such a beautiful job in this book. One of the other themes is about domestic violence, which surprised me a lot. And so there's a thread of that and why Inti is choosing to live her life the way she is. And her sister is there living with her. She's very much living in the house and not going outside. So you've got these two sisters who are dynamically different. You know, one is very out in the world and then the other one is in the house and won't speak. Mm. So I'm not going to do any spoilers on that one. Again, the vivid descriptions of this book just captured my heart. I loved every minute of it and was really sad when it was over. (laughs) (laughs) Once There Were Wolves by Charlotte McConaughey. We're going to move on now to talk about Biblio Adventures. You went on a lot of adventures. I did, and I, I won't talk about all of them, but I will say it was great to see Aunt Ellen She came to town. We got to take a walk with her to the new little free library in our neighborhood, which was exciting. Oh, it was so fun. And we have some fun pictures on social media of the three of us trying to stick our heads in (laughs) at the same time into this little free library. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was so good to see her. Yeah, it was really fun. And then I spotted one in Niantic the other day in a corner where I've driven past a bunch of times, never noticed it, but I did because traffic was a bit slow. So that was fun to to see another free library. But I did two author events that I'd like to talk about. The first was one that I know that you caught later then. This was Lisa Miller, who's the author of The Awakened Brain, The New Science of Spirituality, and Our Quest for an Inspired Life. She was in conversation with Susan Cain, who's the writer of Quiet, about being introverts. Yeah, that was like a life-changing book for me when I read that. Yeah, very validating for Mm -hmm. for us introvert types. So they had a a Zoom conversation together. This was through RJ Julia and Bookhampton. Really what she's doing, Lisa Miller is, she's a scientist and she studies spirituality. And how her interest was kind of sparked by this was, Back when she was just out of med school, I guess doing a residency or something, she was working in a hospital with patients who were terminal. You know, it's people are at the end of their lives. They're obviously depressed, quite a lot of them. I think it was Yom Kippur was coming, and one of the patients asked her if she would pray with them. She said, yeah, and so she did. And she said the transformation of these patients as they came to the place where they're going to worship together was amazing. She said, you know, they had their best clothes on for hospital patients. They were, you know, groomed and bright-eyed because they were there to share spirituality together. 
And that was really amazing for her, such a great experience to see how spirituality transformed these people from one day to the other. So that is what she studies, is how spirituality affects us neurologically. Yeah, what I wrote down is that she said, sustained spiritual life is neuroprotective against depression. Yes. I just loved the way she said that. Yeah, and she talks about that, and that it's your own spirituality and shared spirituality is very important. And she did say, you know, there are one-third of people who really do need medication, so she's not like anti-medication or any way or saying that this is going to work 100% for everyone, but that this is significant. For two-thirds of the people who are depressed, spirituality can help. In this day and age when over 50% of Americans say that they're depressed, right. it's huge. It could be a huge transformation. You know, it doesn't have to be organized religion as we know it. You know, we've talked about Islam and Christianity and there's Judaism and other major religions. I guess another thing that really stuck in my mind that I've been thinking about a lot is she's identified your teen years and then your midlife as times when you have really huge growth changes. They're huge developmental changes. She talks about them as an existential hunger, mm-hmm. which I really loved. And she said, you know, unfortunately, our culture has dismissed these things. You know, it's like, oh, you're an awful teenager or I'm going through a midlife crisis. They're presented as negative experiences opposed to these transformative times for us to really dig deep spiritually and understand ourselves and grow. And I just love that. I thought it was such a positive message. And I do want to get the book. I haven't been to a bookstore yet to yeah. check it out, but I want to. Yeah. And I mean, I also think the thing she said is we have with the teen years and the midlife crisis years, it's almost like there's societal expectations like, oh, they're going to lose their mind and they're going to go buy a sports car and blah, blah, blah. Instead of why don't we look at this as more of a deep growth experience. Mm -hmm. You know, I really appreciated that too, particularly being in midlife. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the easy way for our consumer culture. Mm -hmm. You don't feel good, buy something, right? Get yourself something, you know, instead of going inside and exploring your own self, your own spirituality, your own awareness and talking with other people who are on a similar path. Yeah, it was a really interesting event. I mean, two very revered scientists. And, you know, one of the things and I won't get into it, the nitty gritty, unless you took notes on it, because I didn't take notes as I was listening was, she's also scientifically proven this. Yes. I mean, it's not just her, not that this would be bad, but it's not just her experience of talking to patients. She's done scientific research. Yes. Absolutely. And it's published in peer-reviewed scientific journals. So this is not woo-woo. Right. And I remember like in the 90s, I think there was a big movement when scientists started researching and uh, doing experiments with monks and meditation. And does it change your brain? Mm -hmm. I don't know who first stumbled upon it, but that your brain waves really do change when you're meditating versus when you're having busy mind. Mm -hmm. There's even a I don't know if they still have it, but they used to have this hands-on experiment you could do at the Museum of Science and Industry in, in Chicago, where you could sit across from another person with these, you know, uh, like a cap on your head. It has electrodes to measure your brain movement. And it's almost like a competition to see who could have the less spikes, oh, you know, uh-huh. it's a really cool thing to do. Yeah. And it's, it's real. It's science. It's yeah. biologically proven. 
Yeah. Neurologically proven, I guess yeah. I should say. Yeah. There's a lot of talk about neuroplasticity right now and creating new neural pathways and all of that. I'm very interested in that. And particularly with this idea of intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. And I think when we were younger, the thought was brain cells die and you can't get them back. So your brain atrophies. So, mm-hmm. you know, and now that's completely reversed. Like the brain continues to spark and rewire itself or it can in different right. ways if you work with it and nurture it. Yeah. I just want to say too, Susan, somebody asked about what she's working on now and she has a book coming out in the spring and it's called Bittersweet. This came out of her questioning of herself. She calls herself a happy melancholic. She's always been fascinated by sad music and how it makes her feel better. And so she's wondered about that. Like, why does sad music make me feel better and other people? So that's what her next book's going to be about. So I look forward to that. Yeah, that's really interesting. It made me think about, you know, my breakup songs, the things I listen to over and over. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see which examples of music she picks as well. Yeah, for sure. I attended an event with Miranda Cowley Heller and Mackenzie Newcomb. Miranda is the author of The Paper Palace, which is the book I just talked about. Mackenzie Newcomb is a host of, it's like a Barnes and Noble book club. So it was a fun event because it's a book club event where everyone had read the novel and they were on the Zoom and then they would ask questions at the end. I was watching it after it already been recorded. One of the things about the Paper Palace is it has a very ambiguous ending. And I've been to enough book events that when an author writes a book like that, there's always the people in the room that are like, I would like the answers now that you're here with us. (laughs) And she, Miranda, was not going to bite. It was really funny. And so I really enjoyed some of the questions that came up because they tried to come in the back door. Like, you know, I'm going to ask it this way and then maybe she'll give up something, you know, and she did not play. (laughs) There were no secrets given. And then the other thing that was fun was she talked about the cover because the Paper Palace has this beautiful cover and her grandfather was a painter and painted Cape Cod quite often. Someone was asking her about the cover and if she had any say, and she said she didn't, but lots of times there's a couple different choices that an author will get. And unbeknownst to her, the artist who was working on the cover had found a piece of her grandfather's artwork that nobody knew existed. Oh, cool. And that's what ended up being the cover for the book. So I thought that was a really cool story. And it was funny because Mackenzie, the host, was like, oh, I never ask cover questions because usually the authors don't have much say in a cover. And so it was neat that, you know, one of the listeners asked that, then it ended up being a cool story, you know? Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, the other author event I was able to catch was just last night. It was Peter Heller with Diane Les Beckett's. I don't think I might be mutilating her last name. And this was an event hosted by Politics and Prose, Books and Books, and Gibson's Bookstore. So the three of these bookstores got in cahoots together to bring it to the audience. And Peter Heller's new book is called The Guide. Emily and I love his books. I should say I've only read The River. And then Celine. Celine, yeah, Yeah. Celine too, yeah. yeah. His new book is out now, The Guide. It's set in a remote area of Colorado. Diane was a really good interviewer. She asked really good questions and really is a student of his work. You could tell she's read it deeply and carefully. There was a Marilyn Robinson connection, which I thought was fun because Emily has been reading some Marilyn Robinson. 
So Peter went to the Iowa Writers Workshop back in the day. He was a little bit older. He was like in his late 30s. And he was in their fiction program and the poetry program. And he said in the poetry program, most of the people there were like just out of college. And in the fiction program, most people were a little bit older. They were, they'd been working already and, and whatnot. So he had different experiences in both of those programs. But Marilyn Robinson was one of his teachers for fiction. And I guess there's a line in the guide where one of the characters talks about evil, that evil is an impediment to being. Mm. That's what evil is. In in the context of the novel, it's presented as a conversation with Marilyn Robinson. So Diane asked Peter, did you have that conversation with her? And he said, yeah, he did. He was a student there in Iowa, and they became friends. And he said he was sitting in her backyard one day. They were drinking iced tea, I think he said. And he asked her, like, what is evil? What do you think evil is? And that was her answer, that it's an impediment to being, Mm. which I think is really deep and profound. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So that's definitely something to think about. And I thought he was really cute because talking about going to the Iowa Writers Workshop, he's living in Colorado and beautiful mountains and everything. And he's like, Iowa. He's like, I don't want to go live in the cornfields. Like, who wants (laughs) to do that? But he went because it's a big thing. Yeah. And he fell in love with the cornfields and he fell in love with Iowa. And he said, you know, every day after class, he'd put his kayak in the river that runs through Iowa City and he's just blown away by it. Mm. So that was a very transformative experience for him as well mm. to fall in love with that landscape. But sounds like a really great book. In the meantime, he did publish last year a book that's only available as an ebook called The Orchard. And this is about a translator of Tang Dynasty poetry. He's really into Tang Dynasty poetry, which is 8th century Chinese school of poetry. So we're talking the 800s, really old poetry. He said it's a really quiet book that includes poetry that he actually wrote in the Tang Dynasty mode. Wow. I guess at one of his events, a woman said that she's a translator of Tang Dynasty poetry, and could she read the manuscript? And she did, and and she's like, wow. She's like, this is like exactly Tang Dynasty poetry. So he was completely excited about that, because he's been a reader of this poetry for decades now. Hmm. Yeah, so really cool event. I look forward to checking it out, uh, the guide. We can all check that out. But he did already get his next novel accepted by his publisher, and that is going to be, here's another one of those connections, It's about an enforcement ranger at Yellowstone who loves wolves more than people. Oh, so I cannot wait. Yes. You know, Peter Heller was a travel writer for years, and he was one of those writers that immersed himself in the actual activity, being in a fierce kayaking environment and, you know, putting his journals that he was writing in in plastic bags so he could write at night about the adventure. And he's just lived, it seems like he's lived multiple lives. He's that type. Yeah. You know, speaking of that, he did say that it's really hard for him to go back to nonfiction because he said once he wrote his first novel and he got to make up stuff, he's Mm -hmm. like, it's just so hard to go back. He's Mm -hmm. like, I want to keep making up stuff and listening to the characters and stories that come to me. He is going on a adventure soon with his wife and a friend who I believe is a wildlife photographer. And I don't remember exactly where it is, but it's someplace way up north. They're going to be 
photographing, and he's going to be writing about for a magazine, these wolves that are the largest wolves in the world. They're like double the size of a regular wolf, which, you know, is like double the size of a regular, say, coyote, which I think Americans are more familiar with coyotes than wolves probably. These wolves are so big, they actually hunt polar bears. Holy smokes. Yes. That's going to be really fascinating. He's really looking forward to that. He's like, but writing nonfiction? (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe if it's just an article, who knows? But that's interesting because if he's, I wonder if it's going to inform this novel that he's writing about the wolves or if he's already done all of his research on that. Yeah. He said the novel has already been accepted, like the manuscript is, you know, but who knows, you know, he could still, but it's about Yellowstone wolves. Mm -hmm. So different Different, type of wolf. Yeah. Well, in following up with Marilyn Robinson, I should say, I forgot to say that I did finish the book home. Mm. I don't think I talked, or maybe I did talk about it last time, but I had my book club. Oh, yes. And I have to say it was probably the longest, most in-depth conversation we've had about books since I've been in this book club. And oh. we've been in this doing this for, I don't know, six years or something. Wow. So yeah, I mean, it's it's very Midwestern writing and Marilyn Robinson is a fantastic writer. I bet she is a great teacher. It doesn't surprise me that Peter Heller has been inspired by her as a teacher. Religion was a huge part of it. And what we discovered in talking about her books is that for some reason, they seem like the type of books that, you know, we all bring our own lived experience to our reading and it really affected our view of these books. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting. And some of you loved it and some of you weren't yeah. into it. I mean, some people in my book club, it's in their top 10, her books, at least Gilead. Mm-hmm. Home is like telling the story of Gilead from a different set of townspeople's perspectives. And it's very much about Jack, who's kind of the black sheep of the Boughton family. So I think that has your lived experience of how you are in your own family. I think affects your reading of these books too. Mm -hmm. It's very fascinating. So I'm glad that I read the two. I don't think I'll read Lila and Jack, but I am kind of curious. Yeah. (laughs) So, and I've read Marilyn Robinson's book, Housekeeping, and really did like, I mean, her writing is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I liked Housekeeping. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't have Apple TV, but some of my bookies do. And they said that, you know, Oprah is doing her, that series as her book club and that her episodes with Marilyn Robinson are really wonderful. So if you're on the fence about reading them or you have read them and you have Apple TV, I think she's only done two so far. I think she's done Gilead and Home. I'm not sure exactly, but check those out. So what about upcoming Johns? I'm very excited. On Thursday of the upcoming week, I have a virtual event with William Kent Kruger via Boswell Books in Milwaukee. His book, Lightning Strike, is out now. Oh, I loved that book so much. So I'm really looking forward to hearing him talk about it and what the inspiration was behind writing a prequel (laughs) for this series of 18 books that he has. And then I also have an event with Jonathan Evison and Jamie Ford, Booktopia authors, for you Booktopians out there, Jonathan has a new book coming out called Small World that they are saying is very Dickensian. (laughs) So I have a better understanding of what that means. Jamie Ford is just funny and fun. He's the author of many books, including The Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. Mm -hmm. I think that's what it's called, right? And this is actually a pre-publication event, and it's on September 9th, 8 p.m. Eastern Time through the publisher Dutton. 
So I'll put links to that in the show notes. Awesome. Well, there's one event, my radar, I hope to attend a couple of the events. It's Bloody Scotland. That's the conference of Scottish crime writers. And they're doing a hybrid this year. So some, well, I think everything pretty much will be on Zoom or video of some platform and then in person. So you could do a combination of both, one or the other. They are charging for events that they're streaming but it's only like seven or eight pounds. I don't think it'll break the bank for a lot of people anyway. And then you can also buy a package for the whole conference or just good way to dip in here and there. I'll probably dip in here and there just because my new semester is starting next week and I know I will be reading all sorts of other things and being a bit twirly in my brain probably. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> How about upcoming reads? Well, I'll be jumping into our read-along book, and that is The Doctor's Blackwell by Janice Namura. Looking forward to that. Yeah, I started it on audio just this last week, just a little bit. Like, I listened to the preface, I think. And the narrator is Laurel Merlington, who's been around for a while, and she's done a lot of other nonfiction audiobooks. Diving into that, reminder, everybody, this is our third quarter read-along And we have a Zoom event on Sunday, September 19th. There's still space available, 7 p.m. Eastern time. We'd love for you to join us. Send us an email at bookcougars at gmail.com. Yeah, we'd love to have you join in. And if you don't finish the book or you don't read the book, but you're interested, you're welcome to come too. So don't let that stop you. The other book I'm going to be picking up, well, there's two, actually three. I um, did some ordering from the book depository. They have books that are not necessarily available in the States. So uh, they're my go-to for that. I ordered a copy of Salt by Katrin Keen. This was the Wales Book of the Year 2021. I'm really looking forward to this. It's set in Cardiff in the late 1800s. Ellen is a domestic servant and she falls in love and marries a ship's cook Samuel he's from Barbados and they they take off together on a ship and they end up in San Francisco for a while and then unfortunately life at sea is brutal and racism is real but it's based on Katrin Keene's great-grandparents hmm. so this is a true story fictionalized And again, the title is Salt. That sounds great. I am hoping to dip into In the Country of Others by Leela Slamani. She's the author of The Perfect Nanny, which was quite a popular book a couple years ago. And this is about a young French woman that falls in love with Amin, a handsome Moroccan soldier in the French army during World War II. Mm. They settle in Morocco. I can't say that I've read many novels that take place in Morocco, so I'm really looking forward to digging into this one. It's a neat cover, too. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I should say thank you to Penguin for sending me the copy. The other two books, I'll talk about them together. The first is Monster, she wrote, The Women Who Pioneered Horror and Speculative Fiction. This is by Lisa Kroger and Melanie R. Anderson. I may have talked about this book on a past episode because I checked it out of the library once upon a time. I recently bought a copy for myself because it's just a really great resource reference book to have at home. And it is uh, an anthology, uh, introductory anthology to all of these different women writers who've written in these 
genres. And it's broken into different chapters. So like it starts with the founding mothers, uh, there's haunted tales, women who wrote the pulps, occult, haunted homes, paperback horror. So all of these things. And it starts covering all different time periods. So I look forward to diving into this as maybe something to start my day with, just a little bit of reading before I jump into coursework, reading about one woman and that. Now, one of the reasons I picked it up is because it's uh, that time of the year. We're getting into fallish type time period here. It's still really brutally hot here in Connecticut, but it's cooling off. And I've seen some leaves changing already, which is always lovely to see. Mm -hmm. But the readers imbibing peril read along or challenge, I should say, Readers in Bibbing Peril, RIP, 16 is upon us, September through October 31st. They're doing a joint read-along of Shirley Jackson's The Sundial. That's going to start in October. We'll put a link in the show notes. I happened to pick up a copy of this a couple of years ago. It's been sitting on my shelves. So I'm definitely going to try and jump in on that. I mean, who doesn't love Shirley Jackson if you like horror. Right. And this is about a a mansion where creepy things are happening to a family. So coming up, we have our conversation with Juliet Grames. Juliet has offered a giveaway. Yeah, of her cookbook that was created to kind of accompany her novel, The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna. This is the seven or eight recipes of Stella Fortuna. Right. And we would love to give these to listeners So if you're interested in winning a copy, just shoot us an email at bookcougars at gmail.com. We're going to have four or five copies to give away. First come, first serve. Yeah, so please jump on that one. Super exciting that she did that. The story takes place in both Hartford, Connecticut and in Italy. So some yummy recipes, (laughs) I'm sure. Yeah, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. Julia, it's so much fun. And she has such a deep knowledge of crime fiction and the editing process. Like Emily said, we could have talked to her all day. Yes, for sure. So enjoy. We're thrilled to have with us today, Juliet Grames, author of The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna, a novel that was a Barnes and Noble Discover Great New Writers pick. It's been published in at least 15 countries and translated into 10 languages. Juliet's essays have appeared in Parade, Real Simple, The Boston Globe, and on Crime Reads. Her first crime fiction story, The Very Last Time, was recently published in the 80th anniversary edition of Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine. And rumor has it she's currently working on a crime novel. Juliet wears another big hat or two. She's the senior editor and associate publisher at Soho Press, specifically their imprint, Soho Crime. And whereas Emily and I are Connecticut transplants, Juliet was born in Hartford and grew up in Connecticut. So Julia, we'd like to welcome you back to Connecticut, even if it's only on Zoom. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. And I hope I get to be there in real life really soon. Oh, so do we. So, you know, as as we were trying to figure out what to ask you, we realized we were wondering, did you start out in publishing? Did you start out as a writer who became a publisher? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So what happened there was I decided I wanted to be a writer when I was a very little girl. I started writing what I thought were novels when I was about eight years old. They would be you know, eight or nine pages, and I felt very accomplished. And it, that was just always my lifelong dream. 
by the time I got to uh, college, I had already decided it wasn't a feasible career path. So I didn't apply to any writing majors or anything like that. In fact, I didn't even study English in school. I I studied history and I, I wasn't sure what I was thinking. Maybe academia would scratch that itch of, you know, trying to create books or something else. And then I, I um, my freshman year in college, there was a woman who worked in the same department that I did who was doing an internship in publishing. And she's like, I think this might be the path for you. So that became my focus. I was like, I'm not ever going to be able to write books myself. That won't work out, but I can make books for other people. And this is going to be great. So I did that for about three years before I started getting this awful hankering to be doing my own creative work again. And I tried to kind of step back into it. But I will tell you that as an editor, it's very hard to make brain space for your own creative work. And it's something I tell young people when they're getting into publishing. I think a lot of people try to become editors because they think it's going to be a backdoor into getting their own books published. And then you will find that at the end of the day, there are a lot of editors who thought they were going to be writers who never became writers. I happen to have very lucky circumstances. I worked on the kinds of books that didn't overlap as much with the kinds of books I wanted to write. So I was able to create some discrete space there. And even so it took me about 15 years to write my first novel. So it's not a shortcut. <laughs> it's a long cut, but it's, it was for me a very rewarding long cut to becoming a published writer where I got to learn craft, not from just a workshop in an institution, but rather from working on the ground with other real writers and digging around in their subconscious choices and having them trust me with their aesthetics. It, it was really the best possible education in how to write a novel, I think. Oh, how long had you had the idea for Stella in your mind? How did that first come to you? And, you know, you say it was 15 years before you wrote your first novel, but I know a lot of the great books have a long gestation time. That's interesting that you ask that. There were other novels that I wrote and didn't publish or discarded before Stella, but Stella was the first I ever tried to write. I was a really, really little girl when I, I first put down the notes for it. The story of Stella Fortuna is fiction. It's about an Italian girl who is born in the early years of the 20th century and who ends up emigrating to the United States with her family. And the story arc focuses a lot on her kind of butting heads with the old world values that her family tries to carry to the new world and trying to figure out who she is, especially in terms of marriage and the family and, and whether or not she's going to become a mother. This story was very much inspired by the lives of my grandmother and her sister, my great aunt, who emigrated to the United States in the 1930s. And they just had a really profound effect on me when I was a kid. They took care of me while my parents were working. So I spent a ton of time with them. And I really absorbed their stories and their cultural ethos. And I, I wanted to write it and represent it, especially because I found that the story of the Southern Italian-American immigrant identity, I couldn't find it in writing anywhere. I couldn't find, especially about women's lives, I couldn't find that story written down in a way that I thought honored the really extreme things they had suffered during their upbringing and their acclamation and also celebrated their fiery sense of humor and their chutzpah and their way of looking at the world. So I knew I wanted to write that book 
when I was little. <laughs> I started making notes when I was little. I think my fourth grade teacher assigned us a project. You're supposed to interview an older person on a tape and then transcribe the interview and talk about it with the class. So I believe that was where that addiction of mine first started, where I would sit down like, oh, are you are you over 60 years old? Well, I'm going to have to interview you to talk to you. <laughs> Even as I get closer and closer to 60 years old, that hasn't stopped. <laughs> like, okay, yeah, you know, good. I, I want to hear about people's life stories and what they have to share. And so it started then. I made my first notes when I was about eight or nine. I tried to write a story called An Italian Girl, which would have been a bio of my grandma who had a wacky life. And I would come back to it periodically, and it just seemed too ambitious. It seemed like I didn't deserve it. I didn't know enough Italian. I didn't know enough history. I would tackle other projects in between, pet things that I had read about or studied. And I'm an amateur historian. It's my favorite thing to do is to study things. But I kept circling back to this story. It was an obsession I couldn't let go of. So finally, finally, after many other scrapped attempts at novels, even completed novels that I didn't ever let anyone read, I decided I had to sit down and give this one a shot, try to tell my grandmother's story. I think so. it's so great for other authors and writers to hear when an author says, you know, I wrote other books before this one came out, because you often hear that term, you know, overnight success or something like that. So you really put a lot of effort in from the age of eight. That's impressive. Because I like you ladies, and I'm such a huge admirer of your show, I'm going to tell you really embarrassing storylines of the books that were thrown away, because I know you would never tell anyone. (laughs) (laughs) The first novel I ever completed was about a London street urchin female who disguised herself as a boy and stowed away on the boat going to Jamestown. (laughs) (laughs) At that point, profoundly affected by uh, the true confessions of Charlotte Doyle by Avi. So I think I was 12 when I wrote that. I mean, I know I was 12. It was about 300 pages long. So then I grew up. I got much more mature when I was 13. I wrote a story set in medieval England. I wanted to write an impossible love story. So I had a monk who fell in love with a prostitute because when I was 13, I didn't even really know what that was. But I wrote another 300-page novel about it. (laughs) So luckily for everyone, the computer that they were originally composed on has been destroyed. (laughs) Hard drive no longer exists. So luckily, you never had to read those. (laughs) Any honest writer would admit the same, but... Like I said, I know you ladies will never tell anyone. Never, never. (laughs) But we are historical fiction fans, so darn. (laughs) As an editor at Soho, you're both a publisher and an editor. And we have in our hands this book, Lady Joker, which is so cool, which you were so generous to send us an advanced reader copy. Can you tell us about the process of this and also maybe just explain the difference between those two roles? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in Soho since 2011. I was brought on specifically to run the Soho Crime Imprint, which is a list of international and multicultural crime fiction. It's a genre I'm very passionate about because I think that a lot of the forward movement that is accomplished by literature happens in the spheres of genre. I think it's where writers take safety in the form and in the acknowledged readership of a genre in order to take chances on the content and the themes that they're challenging. And I think that you'll see that I'm obviously specifically an apologist 
in my day job for crime fiction. That's what I do. I think this is where we talk about social issues. This is where we really shed a light on some of the darker facets of society and what happens when systems fail to protect people on margins. I mean, it's a really, really important space for that. But I will equally defend romance and science fiction, I think, are also doing their own important genre work. So for me, having this very specific genre designation for the first time when I took over the Soho role was really, really exciting. I will say that we don't distinguish among micro genres in terms of the crime fiction we publish. Behind you have a book called Clark and Division, which I also published. This is a traditional mystery novel set during World War II in Chicago about a young Japanese-American woman who's just been released from incarceration at Manzanar, who discovers her sister has been murdered and who sets about trying to solve the murder. It's a traditional mystery. It's steeped in the atmosphere of 1944 Chicago. It's a very gentle story about a grieving young woman who's very loyal to her family and has to rise above her own disadvantages to solve a problem. I love traditional crime fiction like that. It's one of our main wheelhouses at Soho. I love that you can talk about a time and a place with so much feeling by packaging it in a crime novel. Lady Joker, which you just brought up, is from the other side of the spectrum of what we publish at Soho, which is we do a lot of literature and translation. That tends to be more formally aggressive or experimental. I get to do some really fun stuff there. Lady Joker was this really enormous project that took about 10 years of work between me and the two excellent translators who've been working on it. It's this huge magnum opus by a Japanese writer who is, she was the grand dam of crime fiction in Japan until she pivoted and now writes in other genres. But her name is Kaoru Takamura. And this book, Lady Joker, is a 400,000 word, which is like, I don't know, 2,000 pages epic about uh, a fictionalization of a real life kidnapping that happened in Japan, but it examines the kidnapping from every aspect of society, the police, the journalists who are writing about it, the criminals themselves. So very different, but it's in the same way that Clark and Division taps into social issues and sheds light on a historical moment. Lady Joker does the exact same in a very different format. So that's one of the things I'm really passionate about. It's why I wanted to try eventually to write a crime novel myself I think crime novels are a great form of entertainment fiction that manages to carry so much theme and so much education in its cute little package. Agreed. Yeah, for sure. So how do you decide? How do manuscripts come to you? So that is so, the decision process is so inchoate. And I think about this every day myself. I'm like, why? Why do you like this? Or why do you not like this? I often have these conversations with my colleagues because when we're talking about a book or editorial meeting, someone may love a project and someone else may just not get it. I think the privilege of being an editor with an acquisitions list is that at the end of the day, all that matters is your taste and also your ability to talk other people into going along with it. There is that. But if you can make a really impassioned plea for something, at the end of the day, it's like, did I like it? Was I interested in it? That's what makes the call. And that's it. How do I explain what I like? I just don't know. I like things I've never seen before. Because I'm at Soho, we are an independent press. We go our own way. We don't have shareholders. I can take risks like that. I can be interested in something that I've never seen before. I have no framework to guarantee anyone there's going to be any fiscal success out of the project, but I can still take that chance. I think 
probably editors of bigger houses are more hogtied by fiscal concerns, making sure that they know that the book is going to sell X number of copies. In that way, you see themes or content or execution will repeat in a way that people know they can make a success out of a book that reminds them of other successes. One of the things I really like about being at an independent publisher is I don't have those restrictions and I can do stuff that's really, really different. Some stuff that is really different will reach a you know a huge readership of 1,500 people, but some of it will in fact reach hundreds and thousands or millions of people because it's a hole that needed to be filled. And so we take those chances and it's really fun for me. That's awesome. And thank you for pointing out the beauty of being an independent press because a lot of people don't really understand why it's problematic that so many presses are being purchased by large corporations. It's true that there's definitely muscle behind a bigger house. There's money for advertising and marketing that you can't guarantee at a small press. There's the outreach of a distribution network that a small press may or may not have. I like to believe that Soho has the best of all of these worlds because where we're operating at this kind of large, mid-sized, independent level is a pretty strong place in terms of distribution networks. But I do think that you want your book to be read by a million people. Your best bet is to work at a big house. So if that's really important to you, if that's what you want, then you probably should be pursuing that career path. For me, I don't need that. I prefer not having the oversight, being able to take these risks. And maybe even if it's only 1,500 people who are going to read this book, if this is a book those 1,500 people have desperately been needing for a long time because no one else took a chance on it. It's an honor for me to be able to be the one who makes that book happen. And obviously we always shoot for a lot more than 1500 copies. (laughs) I just want to make sure I understand it. So that's as a publisher. So you get manuscripts and you kind of go into your editorial meetings and you fight for a manuscript you really believe in. But then do you step in as a separate role then as an editor to help get that book finalized and to press? And how many books are you editing at one time? Yeah, so that's another interesting question. I do edit. I do developmental edits or line edits or both on books. It depends on what the book needs when it comes into me. I want the book to be the best it can be at the thing it's trying to be. And that's what I see my role as, as taking the author's vision and making it the most of itself. I will never be the person who tells the author, this isn't working, you need to change all these things. Instead, I'm, I'm going to try to push them in a direction I think that they want. I'm going to help them get there. I love doing that. I love working with texts. I do have a team of direct reports who I rotate some of these tasks with them. Sometimes I'll do the developmental edit on a book. They'll do the line edit. Sometimes I'll acquire the book. They'll edit it. There's a range of options there, I think, for your editor relationship. I think most editors at most houses would describe that they do a different level of editing on different kinds of books and depending on their relationships with authors. How many books a year? So Soho Crime does between 30 and 36 hard new hardcovers a year. And then, of course, we do paperback a year later. And we also do a lot of paperback reissue campaigns and packages and stuff. But usually I would say about 33 new hardcovers a year. Those are under my purview. I don't line edit them all myself. I have a fantastic team of editors I work with on that. That's great. Now, we always ask writers, like, well, we don't always ask writers the same questions, but we often will ask, like, so what writers influenced you? And 
we'd like to ask you, were there editors that were kind of heroes of yours? And can you talk about them? Yeah, absolutely. There are so many, actually. I love meeting other editors. It's been a project of mine since I first started in publishing to invite other editors out for coffee and to hear them talk about what makes them tick and how they got into it. And actually, it's really funny. The editor who acquired Stella for Echo is a woman named Megan Lynch, who is now the publisher at Flatiron Books. And she was someone that I had approached when I was a tiny baby editorial assistant. I invited her out for coffee because I admired her list so much. And I asked her if she would talk to me about her career path. And she, she said, yes, she like graciously treated me to lunch when I was like, you know, 11 years old or whatever it was. <laughs> um, I'm just kidding. Uh, it wasn't that long ago. Oh, but uh, but she was very generous with me, and I've been inspired by a lot of women like her. Megan is an example off the tip of my tongue, but I'm very inspired by several female leaders throughout publishing history, uh, people I've worked with. My first publisher was at John Wiley and Sons which is a trade nonfiction publisher. So they do, you know, textbooks and medical handbooks. And I actually worked on their general interest nonfiction list doing like health and self-help books. But my publisher was a woman named Kit Allen, who was so creative and patient. She had not come up to be a publisher through an editorial career path. She had come up through marketing. In fact, she had an MBA. She really inspired me. She was a writer herself but she had decided to go this business path. And what I loved about her way of looking at publishing was the business aspect of it. There was no reason that just because you're in a creative industry, you shouldn't understand the financials of it or how to make something work. That has affected me profoundly because I think it's not cool to be concerned with those things. But in fact, if you can make more money for your author, they're going to be able to write more and better and, and from a place of more comfort. And it really works out for everyone. So there's no reason that we shouldn't think intelligently about how the fiscal background of how we publish our books and what we can do for our authors. And she helped me really become a holistic thinker in that way. And I really admire my current publisher, my boss, Bronwyn Ruska, who's also a writer and a publisher and who stepped into this role very much, again, holistically looking at all of the sides of this industry and how to take care of both the personalities of the content creators who we get to work with, the authors we get to work with, but also of all of the other integers along the way. She's helped me remember at all times that every person you talk to has dedicated their life to this industry. Every sales rep, every bookseller, every librarian is a relationship that is worth cultivating, not because they're going to help you get your book out, but because they're an interesting person who made the choice to embark on this lifestyle the same way you did. I just so admire her ability to collect people and relationships, which I think is it's the glue of, of keeping a creative industry together. That's definitely true. I love how you say that. We wanted to ask you one more writerly question, which was when you had to kind of flip roles. I mean, you had been at home writing books since you were eight. And when you finally had Stella Fortuna ready to go, what was it like then to have someone editing your work? Oh, it was really weird. <laughs> <laughs> so many, many times I have edited a book. I'm like, I gave this author really good advice and they were stubborn about it. It's because they don't know what's best for them. And I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to listen. Then my editor sends me notes and I'm like, oh, she doesn't understand my book at all. 
I stepped back and I argued with her for a little while and then I realized she was right and I did what she said. So <laughs> just because you can look in the mirror doesn't mean you see your reflection very clearly, right? No, it is very, very strange. You're so close to material that you've developed in this very personal way. To have any other person start interfering with it, it's hard to look at it as a piece of art external to yourself. And it feels like someone is attacking your you personally, right? But the editorial process is what makes a book stick. If you want any longevity, you should listen when you have a good editor giving you advice. And you don't have to take the advice, but you should listen to it because it may be coming from a place that is identifying a problem. Even if it's not a problem that you, you want to fix in the way they tell you, they're still helping you identify a problem that's, that's extant in the text. I was talking to one of my own authors yesterday about a, you know Ed Memo for his new novel. And he said to me, you know, I love these edit notes. I don't have a problem with the blank page. I have a problem with the printed page because once it's printed, I can't make any changes on it. So let's do this all now. And I was like, I like you. (laughs) The books that survive for 50 or 100 years are the ones where the author had the stamina to keep refining They're not the ones that were hatched over a weekend and stubbornly pushed forth in the original format. I believe this. If you look at Jane Austen and what she's written about her own publishing process, you'll see that she was a master of personal refinement and self-editing, and she was so careful about her texts. I mean, who's a better example of longevity than Jane Austen, right? Right. Yes. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny because I was at an author event once and the author was doing a reading from their published book. And afterwards, I I had seen over their shoulder, like there were all these red lines through the book. This is a published book, you know. And I said to her, like, what's with the, you know, Sharpie all through your book? And she said, well, I can't read this anymore. Like I edited it down. How did I do this? You know, and I just thought... That must be maddening that you feel like you could forever change it. Well, that's a good sign, though, because it means that she's growing and developing as an artist. I think I would be more worried about the writer who looks back at their debut novel and only celebrates every sentence that they put down. Because then what has their brain been doing in the time since they wrote that juvenilia? It's an interesting question. This isn't to say that the debut novel may not be a genius, but your maturing creativity and your maturing brain changes in a different way than you see in any other form of art, right? This is not like music where you'll get an eight-year-old prodigy or ice skating where you can't compete in your craft after age 30. It's with writing, the more experience you have to texture the words you're going to elect to use, the richer what you have to offer the world is, or the more refined, or the more of yourself it is. But I do see that a lot where people either regret or wish they could revise their debut novel. I even had an author who's fairly famous, so I won't say who they are, whose debut novel I had a chance to work on uh, republishing at one point, and they wanted to change so many things about it. And I just, they, they were embarrassed about choices they had made, craft choices. I had to say this book actually reached many, many people in the form that it's in because it's so powerful and perfect. You cannot judge your past self for those choices you made. This is a piece of art. Now you are a different artist. You're just changing all the time. And that's okay. But let, let it be the way it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's so fascinating because I know like even Nathaniel Hawthorne and Willa Cather tried to disown their first novels. And I think that's just so wise to say that you're developing 
And it's a really great thing for upcoming writers who are studying a writer to see that growth as well, to know that they too can grow if they apply themselves. Totally. And it also, it's a reminder that if the book that you're working on now that you think should be your debut novel doesn't sell, that's not necessarily a bad thing at all. This book may not be the book that you should be published. This may be the book that you regret in 10 years. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. Well, Juliet, I feel like we could talk to you all day and we're going to hopefully get a chance since we're in uh, bordering States to have coffee together at some point, we would love that. But we thought we would ask you a final question about food. Ooh, my favorite. Yes. <laughs> mine too. So Stella Fortuna, a lot of it took place in Italy. Italians, are known for their food and for eating. I was at an author event where I know you talked about actually getting to go to Italy to do some research. Did you have any memorable food experiences there? Where do I even start? (laughs) (laughs) It's a coincidence that my book is set in Italy. I love Italian food. I worked a ton of Italian food descriptions into the book. But I think whatever the topic would have been, you would have gotten lots of food descriptions in it. But yeah, I I did find, especially because Stella Fortuna is about a period in history and a place, the 1920s and 30s, in the very deep south of of Italy, in a region called Calabria, which at that time was 90% illiterate, very suffering from post-colonial consequences. So there's so little written about this place in this time that you can read in a traditional history format. In order for me to reconstruct what the daily life for the women I was writing about would have been, recipes were so important. They helped me figure out what people would have been eating at certain times of year, what they were sourcing, what they were growing in their gardens. They also helped me ask questions about how food would have been prepared when you don't have access to water, you don't have access to firewood. It was really, really illuminating. And so when I went to do research, to interviews with older women who remembered this time or knew what their mothers had done during this time, one of the first questions I would always ask would be what dishes they would eat, what recipes they may have been able to share with me. It's a core piece of life, I think, sourcing food, feeding our families, and downplaying it is just not true to most of the human experience throughout time. You know, now we have seamless and that's really awesome. So it takes a lot less time to have dinner ready if you need it. But I mean, for mostly for women throughout human history, large swaths of the day were tied up with food sourcing and making food interesting to eat, especially if you had to eat the same bean for six weeks in a row or something. Um, so actually we made, this is, isn't this cool. My publisher, Echo, let me do this little side project, the seven or eight recipes of Stella Fortuna. Oh, I love it. Yeah, there's seven or eight recipes. <laughs> uh, I don't know what the or eight is. Um, that I, I came across while I was doing my research, and I put them together in a cookbook with some annotations about the history, how I learned it, or how, um, well, how my, my fictional narrator learned it. Um, from which family members. So that, that was a really fun thing to do. But there were so many more that I didn't even get to include in the book. It was really cool. Yeah. And if you follow Juliet on social media, occasionally you can see like a delicious cake she's baked or something like that as well. I'm a food lover. It's true. Same. Yeah, we are too. <laughs> we love food over here at the Book Cougars. Yes, we do. <laughs> so we're going to have some copies of that cookbook as a giveaway. And we will talk more about that. 
in the future. Thank yes. you so much, Juliet, for offering that to our listeners. Reminder, the name of Juliet's book, and it's available in both hardcover and paperback now, is The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna. I loved the book so much. Aunt Ellen, who longtime listeners know, is you know, she's basically a, a book cougar herself, loved it so much. She, she went to an event with you in New York City and sat around a table and talked to you about the book. So go out, buy a copy, buy copies for all your friends, and then win a copy of the cookbook to do some cooking as well. Absolutely. And I'm currently reading it and loving it. So yeah, we have six thumbs up here. Yes. <laughs> oh, awesome. I also want to give a shout out to Lisa Flanagan, who's the opera singer who did the audiobook recording of this um if you do have listeners who like audiobooks she really did an amazing job with it she worked it so hard and she practiced the dialect and yeah i thought it oh. thought it shout out. Okay. I'm listening to that. Yeah, yeah. that's a great yeah. thank you for reminding <laughs> us of that because Chris and I both have talked about when you read a book that has dialect or pronunciation, to tune into the audiobook is so lovely. You it really elevates the story. So thank you for reminding us of that. The only downside of the audiobook is you don't get this beautiful map that Echo commissioned, which they printed on the end papers of both the hardcover and the paperback. But you know, I'm not saying you should buy multiple editions of my book. That would be selfish. But you know. <laughs> Oh, come on. Treat yourself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Julia, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. We love your book. We love the editing that you do. Soho is one of our favorite publishers for sure. Yeah. Chris just waxed poetic about Clark and Division, I think, oh. a couple episodes ago. Yeah. Wonderful book. Thank you for that. And I am going to dig into Lady Joker when I'm done with my big book summer read, which is Anna Karenina. So oh. <laughs> not having a light summer there. No, no. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you both. This has been a total joy. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Juliet. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the book cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from Libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. This episode is edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.